BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And I tested very positively in a in another sense. So negative. this morning, yeah, I tested positively toward negative, right? So no, I tested uh, perfectly this morning. Meaning, meaning I tested negative. This Bendrovsky Show, Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Bendrovsky Show as I speak, Friday, September 25th is the date. Uh, here's the headlines in the Chicago Tribune to give you a sense of what's going on in the world if you're listening to this 10 years from now. Headline. Parties vow peaceful power transfer. This is Chicago Tribune headline. Parties vow peaceful power transfer. McConnell, Pelosi reject refusal by Trump to commit. What a joke. Donald John Trump is uh, holding out the possibility that he won't leave office should he lose the election. All right. And that is a perfect segue uh, into bringing on my guest. As I always do, I ask my distinguished guest to introduce him or herself. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Well, hi, everybody. Hi, Ben. It's great to be back on the show. I'm uh, David Ferris. I'm an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University here in Chicago. I'm the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, and the kids are all left, and I've been on here a bunch, and it's a uh, highlight of my week, so I'm, I'm here to, to get rolling. Well, uh, yes, I've been promoting this show uh, actively all week. Uh, Ferris will be here. Ferris will be here in part because this is a moment for you to take a bow. I put this in the reader in my column last week. Uh, I said it in my interview with uh, Terry Cosgrove that uh, I just did. It'll drop this week. And I've said it all week. About three years ago, I met David Ferris. He came on my show to promote his book, Time to Fight Dirty. Blew my mind. Blew my mind, and my mind is an old mind. It's hard to change. Give me something new. He was like, why do Democrats presume that Republicans are going to fight fair? What evidence is there in the universe that would substantiate the notion that Republicans are a fair fighting party? They've been dirty, double-dealing cowards from the get-go. Stop playing as though it's a fair fight, Democrats. You talked about packing the court. You talked about getting rid of the Electoral College. You talked about bringing on, uh, making Washington and Puerto Rico a state. You even talked about dividing California like three separate states. You were, In other words, you took a look at the challenge the Democrats faced and you said, what would the Democrats do if they behaved like Republicans as opposed to behaving like the wimps that they are? And now David Ferris Three years later, I'm hearing mainstream Democrats, the biggest wusses in the world, saying, you know, maybe we should consider packing the court uh, in the aftermath of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Anything happened over the last week or two that has gotten you to alter that view that you presented in the book, Time to Fight Dirty? You know, I'm going to stick with it. Um, and uh, <laughs> I think... Uh, you know, I guess welcome to team court packing, everybody. The water's the water's warm. Come on in. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's like terrible to have been right about this. I really wish that I had been wrong, um, but it seems pretty obvious to me from the get go um, that if a vacancy happened in 2020, they were going to fill it because they're uh, just completely without shame. Like the like the concept of shame is just not part of the Republican culture, um, and so they don't care, right? They're going to fill the seat with Amy Coney Barrett, um, who's a like a right wing zealot. And, uh, and they're, they're basically daring Democrats to do something about it, you know? And the question is, are we going to get the same old sort of like, well, you know, we can, I feel like we could work with a six, three, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe it won't be so bad. And I mean, we, we wouldn't want to escalate because then, then they might escalate back. You know? And it's like, um, yeah, yeah, let's escalate. You know, <laughs> So it's, uh, it's cheering me up. Um, and, you know, in, in the wreckage of this disaster, 
um, that's, you know, people in the party are actually talking and saying it out loud, which is uh, pretty cool. And not, you know, it's not like AOC and uh, Ayanna Presley and, you know, the, the, the radicals. It's like, there's like normal Democrats who have yeah. been around for decades who are, who are either saying, um, yeah, we're going to do this, or they're saying all, all options on the table, you know, the line they used to rub out Iran for like 20 years. Yeah. All options are on the table. It's like it's a big table, you know. It's a, <laughs> a dining room table. <laughs> well, uh, let me uh, before we get into uh, uh, daring the Democrats to do something about it, just to point this out. Uh, I observed this the Tribune headline today. The other Tribune headline said uh, Trump booed as he paid respect to Justice Ginsburg, and it alludes to a scene that took place yesterday, Thursday, the twenty fourth, when Donald Trump and Melania Trump showed up wearing masks, which is so twisted. I don't even know where to start uh, at the Supreme Court to pay their respects. That's in quote to Justice Ginsburg. The notion that he was doing that to pay his respects to the justice who he has just been drooling at the prospects of replacing with a woman who will completely reverse everything she did. David, that just, when I read that headline, I'm like, Chicago Tribune, how freaking naive are you? He wasn't paying his respects to her. For all I know, he's making sure she was really dead. I don't know what he was doing there. Obviously it was a photo op, you know, and to make it seem like he was honoring her, but they've been dishonoring her from the get-go. Yeah, well, he doesn't have any respects to pay. He's a friendless, cheer- cheerless sociopath, you know? He doesn't feel sadness. He doesn't feel apologetic about things. He doesn't understand human emotion. Um, death does not bother him, you know? I mean, his, you remember when his brother died and he sent, like, one tweet about it? You know? Yeah. <laughs> he was like, too bad about my brother. He really wanted me to win. Um, <laughs> that's true yes. he's like yeah for, you know my, my brother really you know he wanted to, MAGA 2020 you know and it's like you could take a step you know like your brother said like what is wrong with you um, so yeah obviously it was all it was all just showmanship you know I mean he wants to he wants everybody to think that it's a it's a solemn ceremony and a Supreme Court justice passes away and of course the President of the United States gets to fill that seat except that's just not how it worked um, was that four years ago I think um, yes so it's just hollow. You know, I mean, we have like hours of video footage of, of all of these Republicans, you know, sanctimoniously telling us that, that you can't fill in a Supreme Court seat in an election year, you know, when it was like 270 days before the election. And now it's, you know, what is it, 38 days till the election? Yeah. <laughs> and they're, they're going to jam this through. Um, you know, I mean, of course they're going to do it. You know, I, I, everybody, when it first happened, people were like, well, I mean, maybe they'll wait until they see what the voters verdict is. And I was like, no, <laughs> that's not how these Republicans operate. Right. Um, they, they, they like, what can we do with our power? And then they do it. Um, whereas Democrats are like, what can we do with our power? Let's do like 25% of it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, we don't want to offend anyone here. You know, uh, by the way, they, they didn't, he didn't even keep his promise. You talk about waiting. Originally, he said, I will wait till after the funeral to announce uh, my choice to replace her. They didn't even wait till after the funeral. They announced it just now. She's still lying in state. So <laughs> they broke that promise. All right. You said you said daring the Democrats to do something about it. So what could the Democrats do in the next few weeks uh, to defeat Amy Coney Barrett's nomination. I don't want to be the downer of uh, the bearer of bad news, but probably not anything <laughs> because, um, the, you know, McConnell seems to have uh, 50, 50 votes lined up to confirm this judge. And, uh, you know, Mitt Romney's on board and um, most of the, the vulnerable Republican senators who, who may lose their seats are on board because I guess they want to get paid by the lobbyists afterwards and you, you have to... Um, you have to stay in good standing with these Visigoths if you want to get rich afterwards. Um, and, uh, you know, so they have the votes. Um, and, and so there's people that think that, you know, that we could impeach Bill Barr and, and, and slow down the Senate or something, or we could, we could object to every single thing that comes before the Senate. And I mean, by all means do it, but, but McConnell's just going to change the rules, you know? Um, and if Democrats were to impeach Bill Barr, and this is not going to happen, but this is being floated around Twitter. But if, if Democrats 
impeach the attorney general, you know, McConnell will be like, okay, thanks. Um, we're going to hold a three minute trial. Uh, <laughs> you know, everybody who thinks you're guilty, stand up. Okay. All right. You're outvoted. Bye. Bill Barr. You're <laughs> All right. Get that, get that Amy Coney Barrett in here. Yeah. Um, and so there's, there's really not much that they can do. I, I personally think they should just boycott um, the, the hearings um, because it's, you know, it's a farce and what they should do is they should have all the, the people on the judiciary committee out doing like COVID relief, you know, and get them on video, just do a dual screen at these, you know, these Muppets confirming a judge like uh, weeks before an election. And then, you know, the Democrats are out there trying to help people. Um, but there, there's, not, there's not much that they can do procedurally here. Right? If they want to stop this, they have to change the minds of four Republican senators. And it looks like they only have two. Uh, yes, it looks like they only have two. Uh, I, I cannot in a million years see a, a senator bypassing the opportunity to address the nation at a, uh, a hearing like this that'll be so closely watched. So I really doubt they'll have the discipline uh, to boycott the proceedings. So uh, I think there'll be a lot of speech making and that's where we'll stand. Uh, all right. Well, um, going forward. Well, first of all, what will the fallout, in your humble opinion, be uh, if the McConnell gets to uh, confirm uh, the appointment of uh, before the election? What will the impact on the election be? You know, after four years of this, um, you know, I, I really just have to say, I think, that, you know, the null hypothesis here at this point is that nothing matters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, there could be some movement on the margins and, and, you know, a Senate race here and there. You know, maybe it could hurt Steve Bullock in, in Montana. Maybe it'll help Cal Cunningham in North Carolina. Um, you know, the public opinion polling shows people want to wait until after the election to fill this seat, um, something like 60, 40. Um, and, but th- those were the same numbers that showed people wanted uh, President Obama to have the right to, to, to appoint Merrick Garland. So, um, you know, people can say, oh, I think they should do this or I think they should do that to a pollster. But it really might not change the decision that they make on election day. Um, what I what I do see is, you know, the left is pretty energized. You know, I mean, Act Blue raised like hundred million dollars the weekend after uh, Ginsburg died, and um, I, I think that it it will inject some new energy into these Senate races. But um, I don't think anybody can say with any certainty that it's going to, you know, that this this whole process from beginning to end is going to swing a single race. Um, we just don't know. We don't have the we don't have any polling that indicates that. Um, we just have polling that says, you know, wait until that after the election, the winner should, should do this. But no sense that if they do it anyway, that people will punish them for it. You know? Uh, well, by the way, before we uh, move on to what they should do in the future, are you one of those lefties, liberals, whatever you progressives, whatever you call yourself, uh, who has sort of like lingering uh, traces of resentment at Ruth Bader Ginsburg for not having resigned, uh, stepped down back when Obama was president? This is a tough one. You know, I, I mean, in hindsight, Obviously, she should have she should have stepped aside, and Breyer should have stepped aside too. You know, they were they were already in their seventies. Um, you know, the political climate didn't look great for Democrats in twenty thirteen. Um, but it's you know, there was no way for for Ginsburg to know um, that Republicans would no longer confirm nominees from from the Democratic Party when they you know when they um, when they have the Senate. So she, I'm not sure that she really fully understood the implications of staying on the court. I think her assumption was. She stays on the court and a Democrat wins in 2016, she'll be replaced even if Republicans hold the Senate because the, that escalation had not happened yet. You know, um, if, if the Merrick Garland escalation had, had already occurred, you know, maybe she would have maybe she would have done it. But um, from her perspective, there, there was no way to know. Now, that said, you know, she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2009, and that's, that's not a cancer that people beat very often. Um, and she, you know, she was getting up there in years, and I, I feel like it's it's um, it's emblematic, I think, of the left sort of like failure to understand the, the long game on the court that there wasn't a bit more pressure on her to, to step aside. Um, so yeah, I've, I've kind of mixed feelings about it. Um, I'm not I'm not angry with her about it. I'm more upset with the party that the party until recently did not yet um, the way that you need to push elderly justices aside if you can. Not, not physically, if you want to hurt them. Um, you, you need to get them out of the way because these are lifetime appointments, you know. And when you're in your 70s, 
actuarily, you know, you're not going to live that much longer. So, um, yeah, I think she should have, she should have stepped aside, but I don't, it's not like I hate her for it. You know, I feel the same way. All right. Uh, let's move on to what can be done about this. And, uh, in your book, uh, and on our shows, you've talked about the concept of packing the court. And, you, and now a lot of people are talking about that. Uh, I believe Chuck Schumer may even made reference to it, which hard as hard as that is for me to wrap my brain around. Oh, moderate Chuck. Get along, Chuck. Yeah. Uh, what is packing the court? What does it mean? Uh, and how would it uh, play out? Sure. So, you know, the, the U.S. Constitution does not stipulate the number of justices on the, on the Supreme Court. Um, all it says is that there shall be a Supreme Court um, and some, you know, some other lower courts as, as Congress will determine from time to time. Um, and there's, there's, very, there's very little language about how the courts are, are, will work. There's very little language about the powers that they would have. Um, and there's definitely no language about the size of the Supreme Court. So um, the number nine that we're also accustomed to is just a, it's just a congressional statute that could be changed at any time. And in the, in the 19th century, or in the first half of the 19th century, it was changed a number of times, um, and it was changed a number of times for, for political advantage. <laughs> um, and then, you know, for whatever reason, in 1869, we fixed it at nine, and we haven't changed it since. Um, and so court packing just means adding seats to the Supreme Court and filling them with people who agree with you about the law and about the Constitution. Um, and it's not remotely illegal. Um, it has a bad reputation because of the sort of the collective historical memory about FDR's attempt to, to pack the courts um, in, in 1937, um, but it's not any—it's not any more uh, illegal than holding a seat open. It's not any more illegal than filling a seat in an election year. It's not any more like normatively disruptive than anything that the Republicans have done recently. Um, and so it's—it's—it's it's, it's like one of the tools. It's one of the threats that Democrats have um, to level at the Republicans should they do this. Um, but they also really, they need to be prepared to go through with it. That's, that's what they settle on. They need to, what was the last thing you said? They need to what? They have to be prepared to go through with it. Yeah. Um, and they should. (laughs) So it requires obviously a democratic president, uh, and a democratic house and a democratic Senate because no Republican would vote for this. Uh, and it also requires, and I'd love to get your response to this, a willfulness on the part of the Democrats to withstand the blast. And I mean, it'll only be atomic radiated blast from the Republicans crying vats of crocodile tears, David Ferris, about how the Democrats are politicizing one of the most politicized processes in the world. And the Democrats are finally playing the game like Republicans. Do you think that the Democrats of Joe Biden's era, and it will be Joe Biden in the White House, uh, and Chuck Schumer in the Senate and Nancy Pelosi in the House. Do you think they have the will to play the game the way Mitch McConnell does and move forward despite the criticism and the crying and the hand-wringing? You know, I'm more hopeful about it than I was um, a few months ago. You know, I mean, I, I've been saying pack of courts for years, What you know, whether Ginsburg makes it to 2021 or not, um, just to avenge Merrick Garland and just to make sure that, a, you know, a, the uh, Republican Supreme Court doesn't swap down every policy initiative that, that you know, Biden and Democrats put forward, whatever those might, may also look like. Um, and so, you know, amidst the sadness about Ginsburg's death, and that she was really a legend, um, is, is a little bit of hopefulness that, that maybe um, the reality of the situation is getting through to these normie Dems who, who would rather just go about their business and not, and not have to deal with any of this. You know, I, I think, like, you know, in Chuck Schumer's office, they want nothing more than to not have to worry about the Supreme Court, like for things to just go back to the way they were in 2005. Um, and that's just not the situation. You know, I mean, um, this is, I mean, I think that the public doesn't really care about the hypocrisy that much. You know, you, you show them the video of, of Lindsey Graham being like, hold my words against me. You know, if I say, <laughs> you know, I'm going to fill a vacancy in an election, you, you hold my words against me. But he just doesn't, he doesn't have any shame. Like they're incapable of being embarrassed. And the voters, I think, um, I'd like to think they care about this more, but I, I actually don't think that they really do. Um, and so the, the real audience here for the, for the hypocrisy, for the, just the cold-blooded, you know, hardball maneuvering that Republicans are doing right now is Democratic elites. You know? and I think some of them are finally getting the message that, 
you know, McConnell and the Republicans are going to keep doing this um, until until we respond in kind. Because right now, um, what they see is, is a Democratic Party that just sort of sort of absorbs these escalations um, and then tries desperately to, to return us to this like um, you know long dead bipartisan utopia that that passed from the earth 30 years ago. Uh, the leading Democrats simply have not noticed yet, um, but they don't want to live in that world, right? Like, I don't want to live in that world either, but but this is the world that the, the, the world that I opened my eyes in today is, is not one in which Joe Biden is going to get like 10 votes uh, uh, to, to do health care reform or um, or where, you know, Amy Coney Barrett is going to have like a last minute transformation and be like, maybe I should uphold Roe v. Wade after all, you know, bad <laughs> <laughs> stuff coming in the summer yeah. of 2021 from the Supreme Court if we don't do something about it. Um, and so in my mind, it's urgent. I feel like. Um, some leading Democrats, not all of them. You know, you, you heard all the, the Democratic Senate candidates being super squishy about this on the campaign trail. Uh, you know, like, oh, no, 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 I don't want to do that. And that's because poor packing polls at like <laughs> 32%. You know, it's not popular, um, but neither is, you know, and, and so people are constantly coming out and being like, well, look, uh, the public opposes court packing. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that totally stopped Republicans from doing public like is 70 to 30 over the last four years. You know, um, <laughs> you just got to get out in front, you know, have, uh, you know, have senior figures in the party be, be like, you know, this is court modernization. You know, don't, don't call it court packing. This is modernization. We want to save Roe. Um, you know, we want to overturn Citizens United. You know, like whatever you got to say. Um, to paper this over, uh, you, you say it, but it's it's a raw power move in the same way that what McConnell and the Republicans are doing. And so I was, really, um, by the way, I was like blown away. Schumer was like, all options are on the table. I was like, did someone, you know, <laughs> you know on Twitter when the people are like, um, what's the thing that you would say to to let people know that you've been kidnapped on you know on, on Twitter? Yeah. <laughs> like I approve of Donald Trump or whatever. Like Schumer saying all options are on the table. I was like, someone has kidnapped him. Like that is not shock Schumer. it's his safe word whatever you know what i'm saying uh all options at the table quick quick what where did chuck schumer go uh by the way i had a guest on who is passionately terry cosgrove uh urging dems uh to pack the court but then he got mad at me for calling it pack the court and he goes ben you have to rethink your messaging pack the court is not a good message so you threw out court modernization i'm not quite sure that's the right phrase uh is there any way to creatively package this that uh some swing voter in wisconsin would go oh sounds good to me yeah uh Uh, you know you could borrow a page from george w bush and call it uh enhanced uh, court appointment techniques (laughs) Um, or, um, you know, I think, you know, reforming the court, rebalancing the court, um, modernizing the court, you know, like a, a sort of an anodyne verb that could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, um, is definitely better than court packing. Um, and, uh, you know, I still say court packing cause I don't work for the Democrats and, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm just a guy, I write things. Um, and that's what this is. This is court packing. Um, but I, I understand the need to you know, to cushion the blow and, and, and to call it something else. So. Well, the uh, the Republicans are very effective with these Orwellian terms uh, that they concoct to put a good spin on some BS policy. Uh, it's like right to work, which is essentially covers up uh, initiatives to destroy unions and yeah. make people work for less. Yeah. yeah, that, I mean... Yeah, so now that's the word that they use, right to work, and they just cling cling to it. Yeah. Um, uh, right to work is the right to be fired, you know, for nothing. Um, and <laughs> it's just uh, it's just like a union gutting technique. They're very good at this. You're right. Yeah. They're very very good at this. Um, you know, the whole like late term abortion is a is a is a Republican raising um, to to get us to think differently uh, about abortions that happen. Um, later, later in a pregnancy. Um, and, uh, so that's sort of like, you know, information or framing warfare, uh, is something I think Democrats are not great at either. Um, so if there's a, but this is not, you know, this is not my jam, you know, but if there's somebody out there that has some good ideas about how to, you know, how to sell it, like, uh, I'm, I'm all ears. You know? Wait, <laughs> whenever you're on, we, uh, invariably, uh, 
to a list of all the things the Republicans are good at. Power plays, deceitfulness, shamelessness, uh, coining Orwellian phrases that uh, sort of suggest something other than what they really are. Uh, what are the Democrats good at? Oh, man. How long do I <laughs> for this question? Um, so, you know, Democrats are, are, are better at running the country, I guess is the best that I can say for them. Um, is that is that Democrats as a you know as a whole, and this is actually really important, um, are much better at administering the state than Republicans are because Republicans hate the state um, and they despise government. And so when you despise something, you, you turn out to not be very good at operating it. You know, like if I was like, God, I hate driving, I hate cars so much, I'm not going to be. You know, I do want to put me in front of the steering wheel. You know, I just, I just don't think so. Um, if I was like, I want to, you know, to destroy cars. <laughs> um, so, so I think Democrats are competent public administrators. And I think that for the most part, obviously there are, are exceptions. <laughs> um, you know, the baseline is like, um, you know, they're open to, to new evidence and new ideas. They, they want to do the right thing. Um, obviously sometimes they're captured by the wrong interests um, and they've drifted way too far to the right on a lot of things. Um, but, you know, the, the bottom line is that I would rather be governed by them than, than by Republicans. Um, I don't know how to package that, you know, <laughs> and it's not a devious thing. You know, they're, they're just um, they're just, I think, more responsible with the machinery of power that they're that they're given. Um, and they, they care more about the outcomes of, of the things that they do. I think that's why they're so reticent um, to do these kinds of escalations, you know. But it's like there's there's a very different feeling being governed by Democrats than by Republicans, you know, like when Bruce Rauner was, was governor of the state, it was like, it was a fiasco. You know, we didn't have a budget for years. We didn't care, you know, like they starved all of these public agencies of, of money. Like Rauner just like refused to work with the legislature and you flip a switch and Pritzker comes in, who was not my first choice, but he's a Democrat and it's been better, you know, yeah. not a nonstop crisis. Like, um, you know, Democrats, not a nonstop crisis. Maybe that's the tagline, you know. Uh, like if you don't want to live in a constant crisis, please elect Democrats. Uh, yeah, that, unfortunately, it doesn't seem that um, that works well on a bumper sticker. Not quite like uh, right to work, uh, which is really one of the most deceitful things, uh, slogans I've seen come out. All right. Uh, let's talk about the filibuster. Another recommendation you made way back when, in addition to packing the court, was to, uh, I can't remember now, get uh, bring back the filibuster, get rid of it. I just blanked on which one it was. Get, get rid of the filibuster. What's your position on the filibuster right now? Um, don't like it. Not in favor of it. Um, if, you know, for a variety of reasons. I mean, the filibuster is just, it's just a Senate rule. It's just an internal Senate rule um, that, you know, functionally means you need 60 votes out of 100 to do anything. Um, and it's, it's just so out of step with how democracy works any, anywhere else on the face of the earth. It's, it's very much like the Electoral College, except that it's not in the Constitution. Um, it's a it's a it's a procedure that empowers political minorities to obstruct the work of duly constituted political majorities. It is impossible to explain the filibuster to people from other countries um, because they're like, so you won, right? And it's like, well, we only won fifty five out of one hundred states, so uh, unfortunately, we don't get to do anything. <laughs> five Republicans can just block it all from happening, um, and you know the the. The, the sort of the visceral period where we should look back and, and really hate the filibuster was 2009 to 2011 when Barack Obama had had 60 votes in the Senate. You know, one of them was Joe Lieberman, whose son is currently uh, in the process of like destroying our chances in a Georgia Senate race, by the way. Mm. Um, Matt Lieberman, the Liebermans, not my favorite. Um, and, <laughs> Democratic you know, families. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, one of them was Ben Nelson from Nebraska. I mean, these people were functionally sort of left-wing Republicans and they didn't want to go along with what Obama wanted to do with healthcare. They held it up and they held it up and they held it up and they watered it down. And in the end, it was a worse bill than the one that we could have had if we had simply discarded the filibuster at the time. The filibuster was also used, you know, throughout the first um, six years of Obama's term to hold up judicial appointments. Mm -hmm. So McConnell... This is not something Republicans invented. Okay, there has been 
a sort of a tit for tat game where you hold up court appointments in the last year of a president's term. But McConnell took it a step further, and he you know he started obstructing these these nominees to the to the circuit courts and the and the district courts from the get go. You know, from the day Obama took office, he was prevented from from being able to routinely fill these seats as, as previous presidents were able to do in their first couple of years. And then much more egregiously, after Obama was reelected in 2012, uh, McConnell tried to hold up almost every appointment that Obama could possibly make to the judiciary. And it finally forced Schumer. Um, this is why I think they might do it, by the way, because they did kind of do it once. Like they nuked the filibuster for lower court appointments in yeah. 2013, what they were then calling the so-called nuclear option. It's evidence that once you use nuclear weapons, I guess the you know the, the thrill is gone. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. nuclear option it's just it's just hardball. Yeah, um, and so uh, <laughs> you know the filibuster is a conservative institution. It, it, it's the, the Senate is already a, minor, a, minor, a minoritarian um, body that that empowers a minority of the American people. Um, you know, like the fifty-three Republican senators right now represent a, a minority uh, of the population. And so why would you add another sort of anti-majoritarian procedure on top of this like weird malapportioned body um, designed by like white dudes over candlelight a hundred years before the invention of refrigeration? Like none of it makes sense. Like these are just, you know, people are like, it's in the constitution and you're like, yeah, but it's dumb. So like, <laughs> like, why do we, and this is not in the constitution. We can just wipe it away with the, with the, you know, you wave a wand and people will howl and they will, they will scream and then they'll get used to it. And then people are like, well, then what if Republicans take the Senate back? And, and, and you know, they have the presidency in, in, in the House. And I'm like, well, if the American people are, you know, are reckless enough to do that again, um, but God bless them. They should be able to make policy. They should be able to see what happens. I don't personally think the experience has been very, very enjoyable, but if that's what the people want, that's what the people should get. Yeah. Um, they shouldn't get a, a, a you know a majority in Congress and the presidency and then not be able to do anything because of this arcane procedure that exists nowhere else on the face of the earth. And if Democrats want to do anything at all in a, in a hypothetical Biden administration where we have the Senate, they're going to have to get rid of the filibuster on day one. They cannot wait six months for Republicans to prove that they won't work with them. We already know that. Yeah. Uh, and we don't have the time to spare. It's like you have like 18 months to make policy when you take office in this country before the, you know, before everybody has to go campaign for the midterms. Um, and, and that's just not enough time to wait, you know? And, and so important listening to you, um, it just pops in my head. If this happens, and we'll get into uh, your predictions for uh, the elections, but if this happens and the Dems take control of the White House, the House and the Senate, the Republicans will pivot. And everything they've been arguing for now, they will be arguing just as loudly and, uh, insincerely for the opposite. And so I just, this is what I really hope, that my beloved Democrats can sort of withstand the, the counterpunch without crumbling David Ferris, you know, just like so worried about what a poll or a focus group says. I just had a conversation. I don't know if you're a, you're a baseball fan, but I just had this great interview with Joe Colley of the Sun-Times talking about the Bulls and how they were obsessed with analytics. And they ended up using analytics for all the wrong things to justify the worst decisions. And it just seems like Democrats are sometimes like that. You know what I'm saying? They get obsessed with a little poll about a swing voter in Wisconsin. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, well, we went into a diner and it turns out the people that voted for Trump in 2016 are going to do it again. Oh, uh, wow, I can't believe that. That's so shocking. Um, <laughs> you know, like, look, I love polling. You know, I love survey research. I think it's an important way to understand where the American public stands on the issues. It's interesting to see how they react differently when you phrase the question differently. It's, it's fascinating. Um, there's a lot of uh, sort of like, you know, weird results in polling where people will endorse one thing um, while simultaneously endorsing a completely different thing if you phrase it differently. Um, I'm teaching this class about nuclear weapons. I know this is like neither here nor there. Um, but there's survey research that suggests, you know, that the small number of Americans who favor uh, like a preemptive nuclear strike on another country um, are more likely to want to do it the more people it kills. <laughs> wow. So you, 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 you can go very deep into public opinion research and you'll find all kinds of crazy things. 
Um, and of course, they should be aware of what the public wants and doesn't want. Um, and it's an important data point. If you're about to do something that's very unpopular, you want to know that and you want to prepare for it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't do it. Um, the ACA, by the time it was passed, was opposed by a majority of, of the American people. And as much as it should have been a better law, as much as we should go further now, it has done a lot of good in the last 10 years, particularly for people with pre-existing conditions. Like, I don't feel like young people today understand what it was like to be sick um, in, in the pre-2009 days where the insurance companies could just like not throw you off the rolls if you got cancer. Um, that, that, that world has been, I think, lost. And that's just such an important lesson to me that if you really think something is the right thing to do and you want to make a stand on it, you have to do it anyway, even if it says 40% approval. Now, you don't want to be like the Trump administration where everything that you do has 40% approval. Right? Like, you want to do some things that are popular. That would be cool. But you can't let yourself be scared away from doing a really important reform that, by the way, is critical to uphold the rest of your agenda just because some people are uncomfortable with it or just because 60% of the people are uncomfortable with it. Just do it. Like You have the power to do it, so do it. And I don't understand, I still to this day don't understand people that are looking at this situation, Democrats and people on our side who, who say, well, we can't do it because the Republicans will just do it back to us. <laughs> yeah, no, that, I, I, that drives me nuts. Yeah. Uh, so you never, they'll always do it to you and then you'll never fight back. The, their book would not be uh, fight, their book would be don't fight back, just give in. Uh, by the way, you just said what uh, young people don't realize what the world was like before uh, Obamacare and pre- pre-existing conditions. Stick around. If Donald Trump is reelected and uh, they uh, control the Supreme Court and they control the Senate, you will learn because Obamacare will be going uh, will be obsolete within a few months. All right. Uh, the final thing you advocated for, and we should probably do a whole show on this, just that's not enough time to give it the uh, attention it deserves, uh, is to uh, get rid of the Electoral College, which, of course, is a lot more difficult to do than packing the court. Should have been started in 2000 when Democrats lost, even though they won in Al Gore. Uh, do you think there's any, what, uh, stomach for this right now, David, or is it just people like you and me talking about it? No, I think that there's widespread dissatisfaction with the Electoral College. I, I, the, the conversation in this country, on the left at least, has really developed um, a skepticism and almost a contempt for some of the institutions of American democracy that keep producing minority rule. I think people were willing to look at the 2000 election and say, like, well, it was really close anyway. It was weird. You remember the butterfly ballots and uh, you know, the Brooks Brothers riot. It was a mess, but it'll never happen again. And now it happened again in 2016. It could definitely happen again this year. I, I've been on the show a few times saying I think that's less likely than some analysts do, but it is definitely possible. And I think people are looking at the situation and saying, so, um, okay, so people in Wyoming get 68 times the representation as people in California. Um, we elect the president with a minority of the vote, and then those people stack the Supreme Court, and then they can overturn, you know, uh, our reproductive rights. Then they can say the ACA is illegal. Um, these people might, like, declare Social Security is, is against the Constitution. Uh, there's, there's really no limit to the, to the right-wing judicial project. I think they've been keeping a wrap on it because they don't want people to know how crazy they are. But there's, but there's, there's some pretty crazy stuff coming. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's um, it's just it's just frustrating to, to watch this unfold. It is very frustrating indeed. And uh, I'll get I'll close with uh, your predictions and the headline again: Parties vow peaceful power transfer. Donald Trump is freaking lefties and liberals out by saying he may not walk away, uh, even if he loses. So declare it's somehow a rigged election, a corrupt election. Who knows? He 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 could just be gaslighting everybody. He could just be messing with everybody. He could just be senile, and demented. There's always that possibility, uh, or he could really mean it. Uh, we don't know at this stage. Uh, I just know that a lot of liberals are freaking out. What is your current take on who will win? And uh, you, you're obsessed with the polls. You study the polls. What's your current take? Here we are 
uh, we're about to read, to head into uh, the, the Coney Barrett hearings. Uh, so just post RBG, pre-ACB, uh, what's your projection about who will win this election? Well, this has been a remarkably stable race since May. It's really been a remarkably stable race since the day that Trump took office. I think that there has been roughly a seven to nine point anti-Trump majority in this country since about five days after the inauguration. And Joe Biden is as close to a generic Democrat as you can possibly get. He's not exciting. Um, He's not probably going to set record turnout for, for young people. But he does have an appeal to older Americans, particularly older Democrats. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people in my family, uh, in my extended family, who like really like Joe Biden and they wanted him to be the nominee. And, and I don't understand, but he speaks to them in some way. Um, but, but these younger Democrats just, just don't. They think they're too radical or whatever. Um, and so Biden has made gains with people over the age of 65, which is shocking to me. But it's what's showing up in poll after poll after poll. You know, you see one result in a poll, you're like, okay, well, that's just, you know, uh, your mantra should be that's just one poll. But it's, it's been this way since June, uh, where Biden has, has, has overcome like a 17-point deficit with, with voters over the age of 65 from 2016, and is now in most polls leading them narrowly, sometimes leading them substantially. And so those are the people that turn out the most. Um, the, the polling right now has been pretty stable. Biden has, you know, seven-point lead. Somewhere it's vacillated between six and a half and eight and a half points since the summer. Nothing has changed that. The party conventions didn't change it. COVID hasn't changed it. Um, you know, the, the unrest in, 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 our, in the city, you know, the anarchist jurisdictions. By the way, I'm really disappointed that Chicago was left off the list of anarchist jurisdictions. <laughs> <laughs> was it Portland? What were the three? Uh, Seattle and New York. I feel, I feel left out. You know, I feel like it's just, it's just easy to get all over again. Um, here we are in the heartland getting, getting left out of the fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm confident that if the election were held today and we lived in a normal country, that we would win. And I think that we would win pretty convincingly. I think it would be obvious early on election night that, that Joe Biden has won. However, and I'm, I'm not an alarmist about this stuff, but I am increasingly concerned about the rhetoric coming out of the White House, um, not about whether Trump is going to, like, Trump can't just stay in the White House, you know. Um, it's, it's not like, uh, you know, there's, there's not friendly, uh, tenant-friendly laws in, in the White House for the audio squat. You're not paying your rent. Um, but uh, I, I am concerned about the legal maneuvering around mail-in ballots. And the president has been telegraphing this plot for months, but he thinks that mail-in ballots are are fraudulent, are, are themselves illegitimate somehow, except in Florida, um, and except when he's doing it, and except when his friends are doing it. Uh, but when, uh, as Rick Santorum would call it, blah people are using absentee ballots, or um, Democrats are using uh, mail-in balloting, then it's somehow illegitimate and there's fraud. And I just don't know what's going to happen if a bunch of lawsuits break out in, a, in an election that's closer than it looks like it's going to be today, uh, and the president sues um, Wisconsin and, and Pennsylvania and Michigan and uh, to stop counting these ballots or there's disputes about the postmark dates. Um, it just feels to me like a combustible situation that we can only really get around with the, with a kind of victory that looks like we would have today. And so if it was tomorrow, I would say, look, I know they're going to try all kinds of stuff, but it looks like Biden's going to win big, um, you know, do the work like you're 10 points down, but, but have some faith that, that we're going to win this, like with large enough margins that he's not going to be able to, to mess with it. But if, if Biden's lead drops down to three, four points by election day, I'm going to be just in like a full on panic about it. <laughs> not just because of the electoral college, but because they seem to have a real plan um, to use litigation in the post-election period to get as many ballots thrown out as they possibly can. And this is the theme of the 21st century for the Republican party. It's fear of the electorate. It's, it's prevent as many people as you can from voting. Uh, and a lot of these guys are not just fighting for an election. They're fighting to stay out of jail. You know, like Trump is fighting to stay out of jail. A lot of his advisors are going to be fighting to stay out of jail. And um, that's sort of like an existential threat to them. Um, and they feel like they look like they're cornered and they, they're acting like they're cornered. And that, that concerns me. That's a very dangerous situation. We have the president of the United States 
going out, delegitimizing a perfectly legal way of casting a ballot. You have him saying he doesn't know if he's going to accept the results of the election. Now, look, he's been doing this since 2016, right? Um, so that's, that's nothing new, but it shouldn't be any less shocking to us uh, that we have a president who's saying, I don't know, I'll just have to see what happens to see whether I'm going to leave. <laughs> um, and I, I would really rather not have this all end up, um, you know, with like the, the military marching into the White House and, and dragging him out. Although it would be a fun spectacle to watch. And it, <laughs> I don't think it'd be good for the country if that happens. Uh, there's already going to be like 35, 40% of the country that thinks um, Biden's victory would be illegitimate no matter what. Yeah. They've, been, they've had their minds warped by Fox News in this sort of alternate information universe that they live in. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm concerned not just about the election, but about the post-election period where we're going to have to reckon with a lot of the things that the president has, has stoked a lot of the, a lot of the hatred, you know, these armed militias like running through the streets. Um, they, they run over a protester every day. Now it's like been a right wing dream for years to run over protesters. Now they're just doing it. So it's, we, we feel like we're, we're on the brink of something kind of ugly here. And to me, the only way to avoid that ugliness is to win so convincingly that it, that it pierces that, that, that sort of closed information bubble of, of conservatives and Republicans who are, who are not sociopaths, but just, um, but just want to believe the president and his allies. And if we win by seven points, then that, that could get through to some of them, and that, that might be productive. And uh, a convincing electoral college win is all. And you're uh, taking into consideration, I know we've state by state, uh, Biden's ahead in many of these swing states. Uh, or it favors, the, the electoral college favors him as well. Uh, the last thing, the debate. You mentioned that the polls haven't varied that much over the last few months. The, the pandemic, the conventions, uh, the disturbances, uh, et cetera, and so forth. The debate. Do you debate. think it's this Tuesday? Number one is this Tuesday. It's, I know. I can't believe it. Um, well, so, look, I love the debates. You know, I'm a, I'm a debate junkie. I, I watch them with my friends and... Well, not anymore. Nobody has friends anymore. Watching <laughs> 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 my friends in the before times, and um, there, you know, like a hundred million people are going to watch this first debate. Probably, it's an important civic ritual. But I think it's important to keep in mind also that probably ninety percent of the people watching the debates have already made up their minds, and they're just there to kind of like get the cues from their candidate and get the talking points for their friends and and to get jazzed about their candidate. You know. I don't think that's going to happen with Biden necessarily, but that's, uh, that's generally what's been happening in the debates in, years, in recent years where the, the polarization era has left us with, with many fewer undecided, truly persuadable voters at the, you know, you'll see them, they'll have them like, you know, CNN will have the, you know, the focus group in Wisconsin or whatever full of allegedly uncommitted voters. Although I don't know how you verify someone's uncommitted status. But, uh, you know, again, I think unless something really dramatic happens, it's hard to see the debate changing the fundamental shape of the race. Um, the president has proven every day for four years that he's an unfit, you know, ignorant, barely literate maniac um, who says outrageous things and insults people and, you know, tears up the norms. And, you know, he, like, what else could he do yeah. on a stage except shoot someone? And I, I feel like... <laughs> And even then people would be like, yeah. you saw the Wisconsin Republican Party hosted Kyle Rittenhouse's parents at like a fundraiser and, and people are, you know, calling him a hero. I, I mean, it doesn't matter. Trump could do anything. Yeah. And, you know, 40% of the population would be like, that's great. I love that. Let's kill the libs. Um, it's you're, what you're really the 5% of, of the hundred million people who are watching the debate who are undecided. Um, that's, that's your real audience there. I can, in the, you know, they'll do these post debate snap polls and, Democrats will think that Biden won and Republicans will think that Trump won. And the, and the real place to keep your eye is like if there's a, you know, if an overwhelming majority of, of the people think that Biden won, you know, that could move the, the polls a point or two. But I will tell you, um, Hillary Clinton was judged the winner in those three debates in 2016 by like 20 points in all three of those debates. And, and at the end of the day, it didn't really matter because people process that information um, maybe after a bad debate performance, Republicans won't answer the phone for a couple of days for pollsters, but they eventually come back. Um, and so I think the, the political, this is why I'm going to say the political science on this is pretty clear that debates don't move things by more than a point or two. 
um, you know, in, in terms of the outcome of the election. But in a close race, in a close race, that could be very important. Um, and if I have a concern, it's that everybody does think that Biden is up by seven points. And so um, there may be a media narrative afterwards if Trump just like can stand up and, and speak in complete sentences um, for, for two hours that he did great. Um, and you'll have to endure like, you know, three days of this is the day that he became president kind of. Cover. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Completely insane. By the way, that won't be just so you the world record. No, uh, just for the record, I know exactly what you're talking about, David, the right wing media will proclaim Trump the winner, no matter what happens. It's, the mainstream media, which is so many ways emblematic of the Democratic Party, like plays it like it's a legitimate thing. And you're absolutely correct. If Trump can get through, if he gets a couple zingers off, you know, or like him showing up, if he says something nice about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, like the equivalent of showing up at the Supreme Court, you're right. The, the, the mainstream media be like, oh, this is a different Trump. This is the Trump we've all wanted to see for so long. <laughs> and yeah, so- if I see the word pivot in relationship to Trump like one more time, yeah. I'm going to like hurl myself into Lake Michigan. I mean, uh, guess what? He ended up in the same place. He did a 360. Um, and now he's the same, you know, <laughs> uh, insane, violent person that he's always been. Um, you know, interestingly, that like expectations for both candidates in this debate are extremely low. <laughs> if you remember 2016, Hillary Clinton had been through, you know, 10,000 debates with Obama, and everybody said she's such a great debater, and she she was a good debater. But the but the Trump but the Trump team has has painted Joe Biden as senile. <laughs> so they've set expectations really low for him too. <laughs> and and it's like you know, my dad said, Joey. Uh, <laughs> don't let 200,000 people die and, and encourage them to, to do more dying. Uh, uh, I feel like he could, he could win just by, again, showing up and <laughs> loading this caricature that the... Nobody has had more fun with Joe Biden's debate performances than, than we have. I mean, he hasn't been great, you know. <laughs> but, uh, uh, he's yeah. drugs before the debate, and I really hope he does. I hope he does whatever he has to do out of Claritin V, blockers. I, please, Joe Biden, think of this podcast. Please do drugs before the debate. Just don't do too many. <laughs> okay. That's a good a place as ever to, to close it down. It's always good to laugh. It beats crying. Uh, <laughs> all right, David Ferris, I, will, I know you'll be back real soon because <laughs> things are going to get crazy, <laughs> crazier than they already are. Thank you very much for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me. I look forward to, to coming back on the show again. This is always, uh, this is always super fun. That's David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everyone.